Uh, my message this morning will have no PowerPoint, but the title is uh, The Parable of the Hired Workers, or The First Shall Be Last and the Last Shall Be First. You're going to want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 16, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. I'm going to have my wife come and join me, and if you have a pew Bible, that'll be on pages 696 and 697. There is a story and a related parable. I'm going to have my wife read the story, and I will read the parable. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will in inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Going on. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in the vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. At about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. At about the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones and going to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. 
But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with what, what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Father, we are in need of your power by your Spirit to come and apply this word to our hearts. Lord, we are in need this morning of having the Spirit of God work across the lives of all of us who are here so that we can hear and understand and apply what is being said here. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, One could say that despite the fact that I was born in Toronto, I'm really English through and through. When I was born in Toronto, Toronto thought it was part of England, actually. When I was a child and before that, uh, there was this thinking in their mind that they were part of the old country. I like a lot of things that are English, like football. We call it soccer here, but football. Fish and chips, hmm, yummy. And even... English muffins, and of course, the queen. I even get tempted to do things like the English, like standing in line, or as they call it, queuing. Standing in a line or queuing up in order to get the things that I need. This is true. I understand how to stand in line and to queue up, except for one day when I was in the hospital. I had to go to the lab at St. Paul's Hospital. Now, you can imagine at a place like St. Paul's, it's a busy place, and people of all sorts are going into that lab to get their blood work done and other kinds of tests. When you go in, because the room is full, you take one of those paper tags that has a number on it. I took my tag, and I sat at the doorway. Somebody had been waiting there for a long period of time, and they had had enough. And so they walked out the door, and as they walked out, they handed me their earlier number. And I took it. And they left and did not come back. And so I, when they called that earlier number, I went forward. And I had my testing done. And I had all the stuff accomplished. And then I sauntered back into the waiting room. And I was in trouble. There was an older man there. And you could see the steam coming out of his ears. How dare you do that? That was so wrong. You jumped in line. We had to wait all this time. And I started apologizing to him and smiling at him with my nicest smile. It didn't work. He was not prepared to stop until... He had gotten rid of all of his vitriol, and I looked around to see if I had any support, and no. Everybody else gave me the evil eye. 
and I deserved it because I had jumped the line. I had passed the queue. I had done what was inappropriate, and I felt awful. No amount of apology or smiles would stop that man from going after me or those people from being angry. I was to be blamed. And there was no, you can't give back the fluids out of your body and say, I'll come back later and give them to you again. You can't, you can't do that. I had to take my punishment. I was to be blamed, and rightly so. There's a price to be paid for jumping the line. And I'm so sorry I did it. Now, we are looking at this parable that I really like in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. But if you're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, you have got to look at the story that comes beforehand in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. So the parable of the landowner and the workers, it's pretty straightforward, but the context is important to understand it if we're going to get the gist of what Jesus is trying to say. So the context is found in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30. Uh, the lovely and gracious Sharon was able to read Matthew 19 for you, and you heard her do that. And She's even a better storyteller than I could ever be, and I'm very thankful for her. And she read that story very well. The story of the rich young ruler. Now, like the English, the Jews of Jesus' day were always looking for ways to line up. They're constantly asking, who's the greatest? Where do I fit? What is the least? Especially in God's kingdom. The rich young man in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22, seemed to be at the head of every single queue. As it were, he was rich. Top of the line. God's blessings are there. He was young. God's blessings are there. So just keep that in mind, you young people. God's blessing is there. Top of the line. He was um, striving to be obedient to what God had laid down. Top of the line there. He was inquiring into the next steps for goodness. If anyone had a quick first come, first serve uh, ticket into God's blessing, this man did. But look at your Bibles, if you would, and see what Jesus says, starting at verse 23 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's really hard for a rich man for this man and his type, his ilk, to get into the kingdom of heaven. And let me give you an illustration of that. Got a camel here, dromedary, one hump, about this tall, about this big, okay? And oh, my eyes are getting a bit worse than they used to be. I want you to imagine the needle about this big. I want you to imagine the eye of a needle this big. Now, can you fit that camel into the eye of this needle? Don't tell me about any holes in the sides of walls in Jerusalem or any of that kind of stuff. I don't want to hear about that. Tell me about this needle. Can you fit that camel into that needle? Thank, thank you. Because I was looking forward to seeing somebody say yes. That'd be tremendous. I'd love to see it happen. No, you cannot. You cannot fit that camel 
you are picturing that camel, right? Into that needle. It is not, not possible. Now, compounding this startling explanation that is blowing Peter and the disciples' minds, he says in verse 26 that what is impossible, it is impossible for that man to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. So God could do the illustration. Now that should blow your minds. Having every advantage of wealth, of youth, of stature in the race of Israel, of diligent work in the law, this man cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were going, what? What in the world? In order to understand that the, the kingdom that God promised to his people, God, uh, humans make all kinds of efforts to make sense of it. We're trying to understand what God is doing, so we're trying to make an effort to understand it, and so we put these little lists in place to try to understand. Maybe we're going to base our entry on standing in God's kingdom, on some quality we have, something we do, or some extraordinary effort we've made, or somewhere we've been born, or some place that we come from. The list or the lineup becomes the way that we attempt to process what's going on and to give us some way of impacting what God is going to do with his blessing and his reward. I want God's reward so if I can be or do something, maybe he'll give it to me more quickly. Maybe he'll give it to me more thoroughly. We can see, if you look further on in the passage that Sharon read, that Peter was confused by this interplay between Jesus and the young man because in his confusion, he asks about the whole idea of standing in line or fitting the list. Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So as though Peter is saying, now, let me get this straight. It's impossible for the rich fellow to get into the kingdom and be counted good. Uh, what about us ordinary folks who have left all to follow you? Now, he seemed, that rich man, to have an, inst an, an instant entry card, a nexus card to get across the border into God's kingdom. And you're saying it's impossible. Now, we're down the list. We're not the same part of the queue and our numbers may not ever be called as compared to his. What gives, Lord? Allaying the fears of the disciples, Jesus says these comforting words. Verse 28 of Matthew 19. I tell you the truth that the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. You can almost see the care that Jesus is showing for these dear men. He looks from his caring eyes to their questioning eyes. And that's the men on the plan that he has for them. You'll be sitting on thrones. You'll be judging the 12 tribes, your people, Israel. 
You'll be receiving manifold a hundred times more and eternal life. Much will be given to you. <laughs> You're on the list most certainly. You're in line. Don't be worried about that. However, things are not as you think they should be when it comes to how God gives out his blessings or gives out his reward. So many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. So that's the story that draws the need for the parable. The parable is found in chapter 20 of Matthew, verses 1 to 16. Jesus, in telling this story or parable, sets it in the center of a village. Like some modern places, even, there goes my name tag, even in central and southern USA, people come out before dawn, 6 a.m., to see if owners or contractors or businessmen will hire them for a day's work. Groups of people can be seen in some parts of the southern U.S., standing at the corner of a mall or under a tree in a downtown core of a small town, waiting for someone to drive by in their van and to pick up a few workers to come with them early in the morning. To come and to, before 11 o'clock in the morning, fix a roof on a house. You don't want to do it after 11, you'll melt on the roof. Or come to help with the farm work or to come with construction work. In some places in the U.S., there were migrant workers who are utilized in jobs that are too hot or too lowly for the usual workers to hire onto. And I've seen this situation when I have visited Oklahoma. As we begin here, commentator Craig Blumberg wants us to note that the number of times this man has to look for more workers suggests that this is not an entirely realistic story. You're not a good manager when you have to go back five times to see if you have enough workers to work in your field. Once or twice. This is a story that has a spiritual connotation because the other attributes don't, they don't fit so well. They don't really fit. In this scene, the landowner goes out at dawn to find workers for his vineyard. Vineyards, I don't know how many of you know this, but if you're from the Okanagan, you might know this. They need a lot of gardening, a lot of work to produce the kind of vintage that the landowner wants. In the market square, he finds his day laborers and he contracts them for a day's wage. Most modern versions say denarius. King James says a penny. Wouldn't you want to get hired for a penny? But the King James Version's got a little bit mixed up. It is the idea of a denarius, one day's wage. And to this, the workers at 6 o'clock in the morning readily agree. Now, for some reason, the, the landowner keeps coming back. Comes back at the third hour, 9 o'clock, and he wants more workers. He's going to need some more people, it sounds like. And he comes back at noon hour, and he needs some more people. He comes back at 3 o'clock. He comes back at 5 o'clock. In the Middle East, when does the sun go down? 6 o'clock. When he comes at the 11th hour, 11 o'clock, these men who were standing there were pretty hopeless. They'd been standing there waiting for someone to give them work all day, and no one came. 
So if you look at the passage, the, the, the landowner says this. At about the 11th hour, he went out and found the others still standing around. He asks them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Well, it's because no one's, no one's hired us. We came out here to provide for our family and to do the best we could. And despite standing out here from 6 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock at night, no one, no one has hired us. No one's hired us. Well, you also go out and work in my vineyard. Well, we got hired for an hour. Maybe we'll get one-twelfth of whatever he's given the guys. So at this point, we have a master landowner who has a need for workers, and he keeps hiring more. Five times he goes and hires them. He contracts the first set, sets up the price, denarius. And then just calls on the other sets to come and work. The last set seem to be hired for little more than charity reasons, but he does call them. They go out and they work as well. There's nothing particularly unusual here, nothing particularly odd here, except for the fact he's not a very good manager of people and needs. Verses 8 to 16 take a turn that no one would have foreseen. If the parable were to stop at verse 8, the first part, then you would think it's not really all that unusual. Call the workers and pay them. But then you find something is a little bit odd when you see what the landowner tells his, his manager to do. Pay them their wages beginning with the last one hired and going on to the first. He had the foreman pay the workers in reverse order and they pay the 11th hour workers the last hired a denarius. denarius. I wonder why he organized them to pay them in this way. He wanted the others to notice, especially the workers who came from dawn. If the 11-hour workers got a denarius, verse 10 shows that the dawn workers, the first hired, expected to receive more. Maybe I'm going to get 12 denarius or 5 denarius. Denarii, it's a Greek word, probably have to conjugate it somehow. Anyhow, denarius, I'm going to get a lot more. Now, when they got their money, 11th hour workers got a denarius. The early morning dawn workers got a, you can interact if you'd like, denarius. They were peeved, to say the least. Look at verse 11. When they received it, they began to grumble. And the word in Greek is supposed to, it's onomatopoetic, it's called. It's supposed to sound like, just like grumbling does. That's what they're doing. You ever seen people who start doing that? They're, you know, or in a line or in a group, and they're not liking what's going on? And you can probably hear them from 10 feet away. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. In the modern context, this would be enough to cause a strike or a labor stoppage. 
or what we used to call when I worked for Kaminko, a wobble. You know what a wobble is? Something bad happens in one part of the business in the course of the day and some workers see it and without union consent, they go on a mini strike. That's what a wobble is. It doesn't do much to help work get done because people get offended a great deal. Anyway, there'd be cries of unfair be echoing off every wall and every window. There's no way to, that's no way to treat your employees. The landowner is a lousy businessman and a lousy manager of workers. At least in our day, he would be. If a manager today were to do that, if a manager at TELUS were to pay you the same amount as somebody who worked one-twelfth what you worked, Jimmy, you wouldn't be all that impressed, right? No, <laughs> and you'd be grumbling, grumbling. These men who have been hired only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day, verse 11 says. You have made them equal to us. Can you hear the indignation? You made them equal to us who have borne the heat of the day and the burden of the work. So what are their complaints? When you look at verse number 12, and you'll see what their complaints are. They've worked one hour, made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You made them equal to us, yet they only worked one hour. You made them equal to us who bore the burden of the work. You made them equal to us who bore the, the heat of the day. In other words, they did not work as long as us did not work as hard as us, and did not suffer as much as us. We had preeminence in three areas, yet you counted them as equal to us. How dare you? Is this some kind of a joke? You saw what happened today. We worked from six until six, from dawn till dusk, 12 hours, how can it be that you treated them the same when it's evident they did not line up with us in terms of the amount of time they put in? We were here first. And as to the work, it's heavy sledding working in the vineyard, setting vines and digging for manure and trimming off and collecting non-producing shoots. Twelve hours of that taxes anyone's bodies. But to count their work as equal in effort to ours, how could you? And as to the conditions, this is the wilderness of Judea here. Heat and dust, dryness and sun are the lot of all who work, especially the ones who work through the middle of the day. We're beat and we get the same as them? No way! No way. Look at the landowner's reply. And this is really the, the focus of where the parable is going. Verse 13. But he answered one of them, one of the ones who was grumbling, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? 
don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? The master argues that he was fair to the first workers as he paid them what was agreed to. In verse number two, they said they would work for a denarius. At the end of the day, they got a denarius. He wanted to give to the last workers and what he gave to them as the money was his to give. It's his right to use the money as he sees fit. Right? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Maybe you're jealous. Maybe you're envious. Hmm. What do you think is the foundation behind the grumbling of the workers who came first and got their agreed to denarius? Of course, it's greed or envy. Or one could also say that the sin that chased the rich young ruler away from Jesus was this sin too. Covetousness, greed, wanting stuff. Not the covetousness of not sharing what one Pardon me, what one would get when they are working like the workers did, but another kind, not sharing what they already have to others. On the basis of what I have done as compared to others before God, I have a better place in line and deserve better treatment for what I have done and who I am is the background or the, pardon me, the application of this passage. I am greedy for what I deserve. I had better standing in time, better standing in effort, better standing in suffering. And why doesn't God deal with that for me? Why doesn't God deal with that? It's a frightening indictment of the workers to behave towards the landowner in this fashion. We all, you and I, need to be careful because to grumble or to attempt to interfere or challenge who God brings into the kingdom and what blessings and prerogatives he gives to others may be seen by him as jealousy. It may be seen as an exercise in prerogatives you and I do not have, truly. That's the label I do not want to have before God, that I have been envious, that I have been jealous, that I have been covetous of the things that are only God's to give out. So, what does this have to do with us? If these parables are functioning as they had in Jesus' day, there'd be some revealing and some concealing going on in the hearts, as there might be in our hearts. One commentator said that the parables have a sense of, if the shoe fits... Put it on. If the hat fits, put it on. It takes a very big hat to fit my head, so it's not very often that it happens. In other ways, people might be saying as they listen to these parables, nah, <laughs> there's nothing in here for me. I'm not being spoken of in this parable. I'm not being seen in that story beforehand. There, 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 there's no way. We all need to be very careful to really listen, to be sure we are hearers and not the ones that have this parable hidden from us. In chapter 19, in the prelude to the parable, 
The story of the rich young ruler was a story that dispelled the idea of preeminence in the kingdom of God based on wealth or youth or any of those things that you get because of who you are. In the parable itself, there is this dispelling of the idea that God is required to give you benefits based on your priority in time. I got here first. I've been here longer. Preeminence based on the preponderance of work I put in. I've done more or better here. Or preeminence of the sufferer. I have suffered, therefore I deserve priority. Now, if I was to ask any of you directly, do you think that you have privilege in the kingdom of God because of what you do or what you are? Your answer would be, oh, no, no way. No, of course not. Well, let's dig a little deeper, and we'll dig into my life a little bit. But first, I want to just ask you a few questions. Have you been brought up in the church and maybe you were saved for decades? Some of you have given and worked sacrificially for this congregation named Dunbar Heights Baptist Church. And some of us have suffered as we have served Christ. There's a niggling sense of entitlement or of this is mine or I deserve it that may creep into our thinking. How do we feel about the privileges we have when a person comes to our church who is new or newly saved? Or newly saved out of a notorious life of sin? How do we feel about those who are not the most cleanly who come into our church and want to sing about Jesus? Or the new one who is part of this church from a race or culture far different from ours? How about a person who is younger than us or with fewer credentials than us. Are we willing to share our prerogatives and our facilities and our resources and our circle of friends and our family connections and our pastor and our workers and our seats up front, but not in this church, our seats in the back? Was such a one as this? Is there an outsider versus insider mindset deep within us that makes much of our hearts as we attempt to hold back and it shows itself in little attitudes or actions or decisions. I mentioned we're going to look at me for a second. In October, I have been a Christian, I'll have been a Christian for 52 years. <laughs> I am amazed that God has been so gracious to me. Either I'm very old or I was saved at a very young age. I'll let you guess, well, maybe not. I know that I struggle with what God has given to others who are younger in the faith than I am, at least at times. Over the years, I've accumulated knowledge and theology in the Bible that make me think some sad days that I have priority before God for his blessings. I have to fight that some days very hard. What does your heart do when we hear the story of the thief on the cross, for instance? You know that that notorious sinner had a place in heaven just like the apostles, just like you and me? If you love Jesus, he is in the same place as you are. How can that be? Hear what Philip Yancey has to say. 
Jesus forgave a thief on the cross knowing full well that the thief had been converted out of fear. That thief would never attend a synagogue or church and never make amends to those he had wronged. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised, today, you'll be with me in paradise. It was the shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what he has done for us. There are other stories in the Bible. Imagine being in Damascus after Acts chapters 8 and 9. Damascus, Christians would have been flabbergasted to see what God had done in approving the notorious Saul of Tarsus to come to their Bible study. To be just like one of them. He had killed and imprisoned Christians. He'd even attacked some of their friends and family. And they had suffered the fear of his attacks. Didn't seem right. Or Peter. He should have been flabbergasted at Paul's fame as it eclipsed his fame as the leader of the apostles. John the Baptist should have wondered, what is going on? I have 600,000 followers and this man comes to have me baptize him. And God reminds me that he must increase and I must decrease. The hard work of years of Christian service is no guarantee of either notoriety or increased blessing. The pain of physical or emotional or spiritual travail and suffering is no proof of extra reward or wage from the Lord of all creation. Cancer or kidney stones or depression because of the work of the kingdom or the struggles of a loved one who is far from Christ do not earn you a nexus card to God's favor. He gives blessing. And his wages and his acceptance of his people are as he wills. It can be because the kingdom of God is given at the sole discretion of the master, of the Lord. He gives out of what is his, that is entry to the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, because it is his to give. He gives it out on the basis of his criteria, not ours, ever. He gives his favor as he sees fit, for he is sovereignly in charge and can do with his blessings as he sees fit. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and you've heard me say that before about a whole bunch of them, but here's another one. Daniel 4, 35. He does as he pleases with the people of the earth and the the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He gives his blessing on the basis of his sovereign will. More than that, the passage indicates he gives his gifts as a matter of sheer grace without any desert on the part of those who receive it from him. This is what Paul Washer says. Paul Washer is often seen as being very harsh, very hard. But this isn't very harsh or very hard. God's grace is so immense and full of wonder that even eternity will not be enough to comprehend it or offer him sufficient praise for it. God's grace is so immense and full of wonder that even eternity will not be enough to comprehend it or offer him sufficient praise for it. Why does the landowner give the people who started work at the 11th hour the same wage as the folks hired the first hour? Because he wanted to. He had the sovereign right to give what is his, just like God does. 
And he loves to give graciously, our God does, for our good and his glory. Because scripture says in Ephesians 2 verse 9, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What is preeminence or acceptance before God and entrance into his kingdom based upon? His sovereign will and graciousness. Here's what God gives us so that we have his blessings. He gives us faith in and reliance upon the work of Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives by his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. Only by trusting Jesus does anyone have standing with God. That's the only standing we have. He gives faith and reliance upon the work of Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives by his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. Only by trusting Jesus does anyone have standing with God, and this is the only standing we ever will have. So how does this, this impact us who are workers in this parable today? We should be unlike the grumbling workers. Be driven to be humble and amazed at God because of the work of his son, Jesus. All of these gifts are his to give as he desires, and he is a God who lavishes his gifts. Even as the parable shows, the one who deserved it the least of the five groups. We need to be amazed because we have no right to be in the queue, in the lineup at all. God, by his amazing grace, has placed us in Christ solely by his grace. And any benefit we have is on the basis solely of his choice, so to God be the glory. Where does that leave you? Jesus is concerned that the disciples and his hearers recognize that nothing in them or by them or attached to them earn blessings or wages or eternal life with God. I come to you again today to trumpet again the fact that God offers you freely his blessing. If you lay down every advantage you think you have with him and trust God only through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I know many of you understand this, but the good news is this, that though we have rebelled against God and deserve nothing from his hand, we are instead those who are dead in our transgressions and sins. God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to live a perfect life, obeying God at every point, and then dying on a cross to give an infinite sacrifice to everyone who would trust in him. And that's what he offers to us to consider again today. If we have never turned in repentance and faith and trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, he comes today and he says, not only do I offer grace, but I offer you even before that mercy. Mercy to deal with your sin. And once you have repented and turned from your sin and trusted me, then the blessings of grace can be poured out upon you. First and foremost, my son's spotless record can be on your behalf. And then every other blessing 
can be placed upon you as well. Lay down your rights and your sin against him and trust him to do what he graciously loves to do, to give blessings to those who are his. Will you trust him today? Will you accept his grace and blessing today? Let's pray.